This is Howard Anderson of Information Security Media Group. We're talking today with Attorney Devin McGraw, Director of the Health Privacy Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. This summer, you served as co-chair of the Privacy and Security Tiger Team that developed a set of recommendations about patient consent issues for the exchange of clinical information. Those recommendations were recently approved by the Health IT Policy Committee and now are under consideration for future federal policy making. So please summarize for us what you think were the most significant recommendations of the Tiger Team and why. Sure. So I, I think the significant recommendations fall into what I'd say three buckets. First being um, the requirement for robust uh, adoption and implementation of what are called fair information practices by all entities involved in health information exchange, whether it's healthcare providers, uh, health information organizations or RIOs, HIEs, and any intermediaries that might be hired by providers to assist them in moving information, uh, health information for treatment purposes. So I think that was an important part of our recommendations. You know, clearly the fair information practices are the foundation for privacy and security uh, policies in sectors other than healthcare, and in fact, they're the foundation for HIPAA. But we are really looking for very clear sets of limitations on how these sort of intermediary entities in particular um, can collect, use, and disclose or reuse or retain healthcare information. So that was one piece. The other two pieces, which are closely related, are um, the circumstances under which patients' consent should be required and whether the EHR technology that we've got in place is mature enough to put in place requirements for more granular consent other than yes, I'm in or no, I'm not in. And in that space, we really looked to the foundation of the doctor-patient relationship as being really the locus of trust for health information exchange, at least um, from a from a patient standpoint. And so when the provider keeps control of disclosures from his or her record, there isn't really a need to put additional consent requirements in place uh, beyond what might already be in place in current law, which we're not disrupting, because the patient really does depend on the provider to make those choices for him or her. The patient has an opportunity to have discussions with the provider about any any sort of levels of discomfort about certain types of data, et cetera. It's when you get out of that area of the provider being in control of the record is when you move to situations that patients don't expect, like a centralized regional health information organization, for example, where the control over who discloses the data is now not in the hands of of the provider, but in the hands of an intermediary. The provider has lost control over making the disclosure decision. It's not what the patient expects. It's disruptive to that trust relationship that we talked about. And then in terms of the third bucket, which is about whether we've got the technology in the right place for honoring patients' consents that take place at the more granular level than yes-no, it's a bit of a glass-half-full story there. We had a hearing on this. We definitely saw some technology that was impressive, but there just isn't widespread implementation or adoption of it yet, and so it's really too early in stage one to put some requirements for this technology to be used, but certainly it's an area that ONC should play a role in um, developing further, um, such as through pilots and demonstrations. In all these recommendations, 
apply to stage one for the electronic yeah. record incentive program. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct, Howard. So that so thank you for um, adding that. Um, we really started with exchange at stage one of meaningful use, um, which is provider exchange of data, provider to provider for treatment purposes and for quality assurance and public health. The piece of stage one that we didn't get to that we um, hope to get to in the near future is exchange of data with patients. There are clearly some issues that arise there with respect to patient identification, authorization, and transparency that we haven't really um, fully fleshed out. So do you see the recommendations as a starting point for dealing with patient consent issues? And if so, what work remains to be done to give patients more control over how their data is used and who accesses it? Yes, this is definitely step one of what I think is the need for more recommendations in the future that give patients more control over their data than they have uh, in, in the healthcare system currently. I don't think, though, just to be clear, that we will reassess the recommendations that we have already made on consent, which deal with provider-to-provider exchange of data for Stage 1. But that universe of Stage 1 exchange is pretty narrow. When you think about all of the other purposes for which health information is exchanged today, there's a much broader universe out there, and we would use our recommendations um, that apply to Stage 1 to begin thinking about how that applies to other types of health information exchange and to ensure that patients have strong rights to access and share copies of their data as uh, according to their preferences. So what advice would you give to emerging health information exchange projects about key steps they can take now? to ensure the privacy and security of data that's either stored centrally or exchanged on an as-needed basis? So a couple of pieces of advice. First is that the decisions you make about how you structure your health information exchange matter. So to the extent that we put put forth a set of core values that set forth that the doctor-patient relationship or the patient-hospital relationship is the locus of trust for confidential information exchange. If you were to structure your health information exchange to preserve that relationship, you would really be taking some steps to bolster uh, the public's trust in what you're doing. Now, if you choose a type of structure that does divest control over disclosure from the provider, such as putting all the data and aggregating it in a centralized database, you really ought to give patients the opportunity to meaningfully consent before their data is included in such an arrangement. And then, of course, with respect to the Fair Information Practices recommendation that I set forth earlier, it's equally as important, if not more important, to make very good decisions about who is going to be able to access the data in or through your exchange, for what purposes, making sure that those purposes are are narrowly defined and are appropriate for the goals that you want to achieve from a healthcare standpoint, and um, that you're very transparent with the public about how this takes place. You alluded to this a little bit earlier. The Tiger team concluded that it was premature to give patients the opportunity to consent to sharing some but not all of their health information because the technology for granting this kind of granular consent is relatively new and more tests are needed. Explain how you reached that conclusion, how you expect the technologies to evolve over time, and when you think they'll be ready for prime time. 
So the, what drove us to this conclusion was a very interesting day-long hearing um, that took place in June in Washington, D.C., where we invited a number of innovators uh, who are either developing or actually implementing more granular consent technology. We heard, um, for example, from some vendors who commonly work with substance abuse treatment facilities. And for those of you who don't know, if you're a substance abuse treatment facility that's federally funded, you um, are required to get consent to all disclosures of information from patient records under federal law, which commonly called Part 2. So those providers have been for a long time accustomed to dealing with getting more granular consent from patients, and we had that demonstration. But what was interesting even from that vendor is that most patients, in fact, allow for usage of data um, across the board at percentages higher than 90%. So e even with that model and that set of laws that arguably requires more granularity, uh, I don't know that that model's sort of been fully tested since patients don't typically ask for the technology to honor the more granular consents very often. We also had a demonstration from the VA of a system that they've been working on, but it's not being used yet. It's not being used by anybody, including the VA. But it certainly is showing some impressive prospects for use. And, and so what we're worried about is that the market demand for these technologies will be relatively low if so few patients ask for them. And yet, for those patients for whom it's it's of high value, it might not be available since the providers might not necessarily generate the demand for it. So we do think that ONC should put some money behind some pilots to test the implementation of these more promising technologies and see how well they work and how well they're used before making it a requirement. But we really do see the need to step to more rigorous technology requirements in, in order to be able to implement more granular consents, we just don't think we just didn't think we could do it right away. The technology just wasn't in a place for it to happen for stage one. The Center for Democracy and Technology has endorsed the Marco Foundation's proposal, which they, which they call a blue button. It's an approach that offers patients easy access to their records. By clicking the blue button on a secure website, for example, patients would be able to access certain health information and download it. Why do you think this is, approach is a good idea, and do you think federal regulators should consider requiring uh, those receiving incentive payments uh, for EHRs and a high-tech act to adopt some sort of approach along these lines? I think it has tremendous promise to give both patients and providers sort of an easy way for patients to get copies of the data they are likely to care about the most, lab results, medication history, discharge instructions, diagnoses, you know, the sort of nuts and bolts of uh, what you would need as a patient in order to help to better manage your own care. Uh, it's not the entire universe of what patients might want in for copies of their record, but it's a, it's a decent slice. And in most cases, when covered entities are asked to provide a copy of the record, if they can make it available in this way, it's, it's easy, both easy for them and it's easy for the patient. And we know from looking at enforcement statistics from the HHS Office of Civil Rights that inability to access copies of their own record is one of the top five HIPAA complaints that comes in their door. 
and it has been for the last five years. So this is clearly an area where a lot of work needs to be done, and certainly allowing a blue-button type of approach to be an acceptable way for providers to either comply with meaningful use or comply with their HIPAA obligations to provide patients with access and copies um, of electronic data, that kind of action by regulators could go a long way toward correcting the problem that we have today, which is that patients have too many obstacles to getting copies of their data. Okay, finally, what's next for the Tiger team? Do you expect the group to remain active and tackle new specific projects, or do you know yet? I don't know exactly um, what will happen, but the need um, for further work on privacy and security issues from a policy standpoint is clearly there. There were many, many times during our Tiger Team discussions over the summer that issues arose and that we deliberately put in a parking lot. We actually had kind of a running joke on which parking lot was it in. Was it in the valet lot, like so urgent that we needed to get to it right away, or was it out in economy? Maybe we could take care of it later. Um, but the list is Long. And while I don't think that we can, I know that we can't because I know that I can't, keep up the grueling schedule that we set for ourselves over the summer, there is definitely a need for a group um, that is already accustomed to working together as, as we are to continue to take on these issues going forward and to sort of tick them off one by one. And so while I'm confident that there will be some privacy and security work done, um, further done by the Health IT Policy Committee, which will necessitate a subgroup, whether it's the Tiger team or whether we will sort of look to the larger work group that we had beforehand is still a bit of an unknown. But I think um, personally, as much as I miss some of the input that we had um, from our larger work group, I, I do see the advantage of working with a smaller Tiger team. It just gets you to closure and decisions much more quickly. I think if we did that, though, we'd have to come up with some more effective ways to engage um, external folks and the public in, in our discussions, um, more so than you know the, the five to ten minutes that we allot at the end of our calls for input. We've just got to think more creatively and do better about gathering public input. I, you know, we sort of were unable to do that on our time schedule, and I think um, in the future, as we take on some more of these um, rather contentious issues, we'll be much better served if we can figure that out. Thank you very much, Devin. We've been talking with Attorney Devin McGraw of the Center for Democracy and Technology. This is Howard Anderson of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.